The biggest thing you gave me was time. I've always been a proponent of do the job, do it well. When you're a family, everyone in the family has to be treated with respect. Coach Wooden, it always started with uh, relationships. It always started with coaching people's hearts. I want to know who you really are, right? You can put whatever you want on paper, but that that doesn't really matter. His teachers, they meet the learner wherever he is. They don't care what you know. <laughs> they won't. Until they know how much you care. Really appreciate you, Kelly, for being on. We don't do formal introductions. We just dig right in. We get started, and uh, and we let you tell your story and tell the things that are important to you. So, with that, uh, I'd like to ask you to to take us through. As I as I mentioned before we started, you have a very interesting walk, a very interesting process to get you where you are today. So can you walk us through your journey to now being the president at Texas State University? Well, you know, it's funny. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I had a student ask me the other day, like, how do you become a college president? And I said, well, you don't do what I did because I never <laughs> this at all. Um, you know, I never planned to go to college. I grew up in a little fishing village in northern Canada. Um, no one I knew went to college. Now, I know that's not true. I'm sure my teachers went to college, but it wasn't something we talked about. My mom uh, finished grade nine. My dad finished grade 12. And somehow they scratched out a living uh, up in Canada. And um, they were they were unable to have their own children. So they um, and they adopted me and a my sister as well, and uh, they were foster parents. So I grew up in basically a foster home. I wasn't fostered, but I had a lot of foster brothers and sisters coming through, some short-term, some longer-term. And and so, you know, we're all a product of the things that happened to us when we were young. And for me, it was watching my parents who were, you know, we lived in a trailer court, in a trailer, in a mobile home. Uh, they were not rich by any means. We if, we lived in a house periodically, but it was always a rented house. And, um, but in in spite of their modest means, they found room in their heart and on their hearth to have kids come in. And what always happened was there'd be a knock on the door on a Friday evening and there'd be a police officer there. And, and these were a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officers at the time. They're all guys because there was only guys back then. And they, my mom would open the door and they say, hey, Edna, can you take this kid for a couple of days until we sort out what's happening at home? And then uh, the kids would come play with me and my little sister. And then the cops would go in there and hang out with my mom and dad and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee. And to me, those guys were supermen. And uh, if I wasn't going to make it in an NHL as a goalie, which was my ultimate dream, but you know, you have that dream, but you know, it's never really going to happen. The next dream was to be a police officer. And uh, I didn't know how to become one, but that was my goal. And um, eventually uh, I moved down south. My dad moved down to Southern Alberta in my February, my senior year. There's a community college not far away. And all of a sudden I have all these buddies that are high school seniors and they're all going to college. I, I didn't even know what that meant. And uh, it's February, then it's March and April. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I have a construction job and I saw a poster for a law enforcement with a law enforcement officer on it and said, Lethbridge Community College, get a degree, become a police officer. And I said, that's how you become a police officer. So I went to college and it's a little community college. I was 17 years old when I went to college and graduated. I was 19 and couldn't get a job as a police officer. So I became a prison guard for, for three years. And uh, and once you get in prison, it's hard to get out, even when you're a guard. 
And <laughs> I wanted, I, you know, it's hard to become a police officer when you're, when you're a guard. And, and I, I thought my life was pretty much ended. I was basically, um, I told somebody once I was doing a life sentence eight hours at a time. I was just <laughs> like, my only goal was to finish the shift, get to the weekend and then retire uh, when I got my 20 years in. And that's what I saw my life doing. And one of my former instructors uh, saw me one day and we we're passing Pat, literally crossing paths on the sidewalk. And he stopped and he said, hey, I thought you want to be a police officer. And he, I said, I do, but I'm kind of stuck here now. And he said, hey, if you go back to college, get a four-year degree, I'll help you become a police officer. And he said, there's a school in Texas called Sam Houston State. They've got a big criminal justice program and they'll accept kids from my college. He was my former instructor. And uh, go down there, get a degree. And that was the beginning of the, I count my life before and after Sam Houston State. Because when I got that four-year college degree, it opened up the world to me. And what it opened up for me mostly was it introduced me to my wife. And then um, then the life of academia, because I, I wanted to stay in the States. I didn't have a green card, and but I had a student visa. So I went back to school because I had a student visa and got my master's, my PhD. Next thing you know, I had a PhD. And uh, you probably never heard that before, but next thing you know, I had a PhD. I wasn't planning. Right. I was literally stalling for time. And I thought, well, I got to get a job as a professor. And that that got me into becoming a professor. And then, you know, eventually kind of worked my way up. I was at UAB for a year. Went back to Sam Houston for two years. Went to Oklahoma. And Oklahoma is where I learned everything about leadership and about administration. I was a, worked my way up to being a dean at, at University of Oklahoma for 20 years. And then got a chance to become the chancellor at Arkansas State University. And that was my chance to sit in the big chair and realize that there's almost no power and lots of responsibility. But I learned a lot about myself and about the profession, about athletics, because now I got an athletics director who works for me. And um, and and then had a chance this past summer to come to Texas State. That's how I end up here. So perfectly planned <laughs> pathway the whole way. So wow. Man, I'm so I've heard a lot of stories, but that one is amazing yeah. because, because there's all kinds of things in there and we don't have time for the different things. But, but just a couple of them that I got was number one, you talk about your parents and, you know, in life, if you just think about how many people who have a lot of money, who have a lot of things, who are very popular and they don't ever get an opportunity to do what your parents did, right? Yeah. They don't get enough, because in your life, I mean, look, look where you are, because they chose to give. You know, again, so many people, they have a lot of things, they have a lot of stuff that doesn't really matter at the end of the day, but here these people are, they got a chance to experience giving, and you saw it, you yeah. know, you saw it. And that's that's the one point very powerful for me. And and then the next very powerful point is who would have guessed it? You know, who would have guessed it? Who would have guessed a young man who who had no thought, no vision of college? Now he's the president of a university. You know, yeah. I'm I share this story a lot because. There's a lot of kids on my campus and on your campus who, first off, don't believe they belong there. Yes. They, they found themselves there somehow, and, and they think everybody else has got to figure it out. I didn't, I didn't have it figured out at all, and I certainly didn't know what I was going to do. I was 
literally just trying, I was, I was listed day to day, you know, <laughs> <laughs> an athlete, you know, and, yeah. uh, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a plan. And somehow life, life found me, you know, just like the, the legal find you, right. If you, if you get enough tape, the legal find you. And, right. uh, and, and that's, I, I shared that story. And then the other story is sometimes people will say, look what you've accomplished. I'll say, not what I accomplished at all. I can point you to the five people that changed my life. And, and I could tell you about 20 of them that right. were standing in the fork in the road. And I was walking around aimlessly without a plan, without any plan in the world. And they said something sometimes, and there's a couple of stories, they don't remember even saying it. And that's yeah. another lesson for me. Yes. I'm always being watched. And if I say something that either inspires or tears down, that can have a huge impact on someone without even knowing, not because I'm important, but because my position is important. Right. And right. so when I think about how people have torn me down and I've had, we've all had experiences, how people lifted me up. I want to hang around with people who lift me up. And so I've made a decision in my life to do everything I can to be always in a position of lifting people up and encouraging and edifying people because there's so many people out there tearing everybody down and everyone's getting beat up on. And if I can be that one person who someday back in, in, in their life later on, they go, remember when Dr. D said that thing? I'll, I may not remember saying it, but we're always being influenced and influencing other people. And my life is not the story of me. It's the story of other people. And, and I, just, I, I just think that that's what's remarkable about my life because it, it tells a story about what can happen when you, when you decide that you're going to help somebody else out. The, the impact you can have is unbelievable. It's, it's infinite. Right, right. And, and it, it, like you're saying, it, it keeps on growing. And, and that'll take me right to my next discussion topic. Here at, at Kansas State, man, I, I get an incredible opportunity to learn from Gene Taylor, who's our AD, and Chris Kleiman as the assistant head coach. What, well, before being in this role, Listen, I was focused on my position, my little three, four, five guys and whatever else happened, I could care less. But as I've, as I've been in this role and having the opportunity to see the team from the bigger picture, it's and it's incredible the opportunities to learn that I get every single day because there are things that happen in your office, in the AD's office, in the head coach's office that that we as assistant coaches would never have an idea of. And so, and so I'm incredibly blessed in that way. And I get to, to learn from some really good leaders, but I've had opportunity throughout my career to be around exceptional leaders. And so my next question for you is, who are the leaders that you've been around? And, and what are some of the things that those people have, have taught you? That's a great question. I think about that a lot. I'm going to tell you about one you never heard of before and one you probably have heard of, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, the first one is the, probably the, he's he's one of those lists of five people that changed my life. I was going to drop out of graduate school. I didn't understand it. I would like said I wasn't I wasn't planning to become a professor. I was literally just in there trying to figure out what to do with my, what was next for me. And I wasn't getting it. I, I felt like everybody else seemed really smart. I didn't feel very smart. Didn't feel like I fit in. i all these kids were so brilliant. And I was just, I was not going to make it. I was going to drop out. And uh, the department chair and I, again, literally walking down the hallway and she said, how's it going? What she meant by that was hi. 
Uh, but she said, how's it going? And I stopped and said, well, I'm thinking about dropping out. And she stopped and she said, <laughs> what's going on? I said, I'm just not getting it. And I feel like I don't fit in here. I'm a criminal justice major and I'm in a sociology department and square peg round hole. And she said, have you, have you met Ben Crouch? And I said, I don't, I don't know who that is. She said, come with me. And this Friday afternoon, like three in the afternoon, walks me down to Dr. Crouch's office and she knocks on the door and the door opens and says, Ben, this is Kelly. He used to work in prison. He's a, he's a Canadian and you do research in, in prisons and with prison guards and inmates and you guys might have a lot in common, but he's thinking about dropping out of graduate school. Would you mind talking to him? And, and he says, oh, sure, Kelly, come on in. And he spent two hours with me that afternoon and took a guy who was going to drop out, who thought, you know, the end was near. And I got yeah. I got to move back to Canada because if, if I'm not in school, I got to go back. Right. And uh, and so he he kind of mentors me and says, OK, starting Monday, you're going to start working for me. And uh, I got a closet, literally a closet across the hall. And uh, we'll, we'll put you in the office there and I'll, I'll get a phone for you. I get your computer. You work for me. And, and that he took off from there and became my mentor. And, you know, um, I, I wasn't really close with my dad for lots of reasons, but um, it was just um, that he became like a father figure to me and in a time where I was becoming of age. I was a little older, but I was it took me a long time to grow up. And, right. and I was just he was there right when I was kind of hitting my mark. I was married. We're about to have our first child. And one day we drove to Brownwood, Texas, and uh, right when we got to Brownwood, it just started pouring down rain. And so we just sat in his car. He was driving. I was in the pasture seat. We started talking about having kids. I was about to have my first child. And uh, he, I'm saying, I'm going to have a boy, and he's going to play football and baseball and all this stuff. And, and uh, he said, if you're lucky, you'll have girls. You're, you're a girl, Dad. And, uh, and he starts explaining to me the difference, difference between being a father and a dad said, anybody can be a father. Biologically, anyone can be a father, but it takes something special to be a dad. And he starts mentoring me through that thing. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking, why does he care about me? Like, well, I'm, I'm nobody. And like, what? And so I got started getting kind of emotional, like, because he was like, invest, he was literally like sitting there pouring himself into me. Like, I've got all this wisdom. I, you should soak some of this up. And at yeah. one point I said, Dr. Crouch, how how could I ever repay you for what you've done for me? I can't, I mean, I can't believe where I am now from where I met you. And he said, uh, Kelly, you don't have anything I want, so you can never repay me. But then he said, someday you'll be sitting behind the steering wheel and there'll be someone else sitting in the pasture seat. And when you, and they need something from you. And when you do that for them, that's how you pay me back. Because, you know, someone did that for me. Yes. I've never forgotten. You know, there's a movie that came out much many years later called uh, Pay It Forward. Yes. But that's that's what he was teaching me. And there's not a time in my career in a daily basis where someone doesn't ask me for something. And I don't think about Dr. Crouch where he said, you got to help that person. And so it could be the smallest thing. A student group wants me to come uh, take a picture. Uh, somebody wants me to do a podcast. I never say no to anybody. And it's one of the most enriching parts of my career is being able to say yes and not being not holding back because he didn't hold back to me right he, well you mentioned about giving you know and then the other person you do know this um when i became the faculty rep at, o, at ou um i went and met with joe castiglione who i'd met but didn't know i was on the athletics council and joe said hey i want you to understand our program if you want you can come to all our senior staff meetings if you want, and you sit in there. I had no idea how athletics works. Like to me, I, I go to a game, I buy some popcorn, drink a Coke, <laughs> watch the game, 
I yell and get mad and I go home and it's over. I had no idea. We went to my first meeting. It was like, it was like July. And they're talking about the first game, like how we're going to work out the parking and the traffic flow. You know, Norman, Oklahoma, they turn all the roads are one way before the game. We're all one way going out after the game. And I said, it's July. You guys are talking about the first game already? Said, we've been doing this since February. And so you're late, you're late getting here. And so what I learned about Joe was about honesty and integrity and about understanding your job. Like he understand everything about his job. He didn't do everything, but he understood what the finance people were doing, what the fundraising people were doing, what the ticketing people were doing. And he would always say, well, I'm just an old marketing guy, but I don't know everything, but should we look at this? And his people loved him and would do anything for him. And, and I got to be where I would, uh, I, you know, I, as a far, I can't do everything for him, but I just love that guy. Cause he was, he was so gracious with his time with me. And I saw him do that with other people, mentoring people. So many people are now athletics directors that work for him. And uh, I got to see behind the scenes, how athletics work. And when I became a president or the chancellor at Arkansas state, I knew how athletics worked because of him. He could have pushed me aside and kept me aside, but he brought me in. And I got to see behind the curtain how one of the best athletics programs in the country works. And uh, he's uh, on that group of people that changed my life forever because they cared about me and and wanted to give me more than I could find on my own. Wow. Again, you you give me a lot to unwrap. (laughs) But... You know, you it's still you go back to you go back to giving, you know, go back to giving. You you made the note about uh, well both both names that you mentioned, both mentors that you had, and the importance of them taking the responsibility. I call it the responsibility of pouring into you, pouring into someone else. So w- one of the first gifts. Here I am using another podcast word. One of one of the first guests on this program was a a coach who's a, who's now at uh, a Valdosta State. Uh, Tremaine Jackson, he's a head coach there. Well, Tremaine, I coached Tremaine in high school, and Tremaine relived that moment for him when he asked me, Coach, what can I do to pay you back? You you've been such a an inspiration in my life, such a leader in my life. And what I said to him is, man, I want you to do what I did for you for someone else. Well, one day I'm at the convention. First, I I took Tremaine as a coach. I took him to his first coaches convention. As a matter of fact, when he was in college, he would go to the convention with me. (laughs) You know, I was was at another university, but he said, coach, I just want to go to the convention and just hang around you. I'm not a coach yet, but I want to be. So he was in my what I would call he was in my entourage. And uh, well, a few years later, when he became a coach, I was at the convention and I was I was outside the convention center, but I could see inside and through the glass windows. I saw Tremaine walking down the hall with some young guys following him. So I said, he has an entourage. (laughs) He has an entourage. And so, and so I called him and I said, hey, man, you, you paid me back. You know, you paid me back. I see you. You're paying me back. And, and again, there are coaches and there are athletic directors and there are university presidents 
they will never get the opportunity to experience what you get to experience by giving and by pouring into those student groups, by doing a podcast. You, you don't know how many people you get an opportunity to help. Yeah. So um, speaking of your responsibilities, part of your responsibility is, is to find people who fit on your team, people who fit on your bus. And when you're when you are going through that process, what is it that you look for to know that this person is a fit for for a role on, on my team? Yeah, that's a great question. And as a new leader or a leader at a new place, that's a question I'm working on right now. Part of the part of the reality is in athletics that works a little differently. You know, when a coach gets hired, oftentimes he or she will you know, the, the other assistant coaches are let go and, and then the coach can like draw on all of his or her friends from around the country and build a team that way. Um, in my position, you typically inherit a cabinet. And there are people who've gone in on the first day, demand resignations from everybody. Uh, I've never thought that that was a good way to go because there's so much collective, you know, memory of how things work. Now, sometimes that's a danger because you're always bumping in. Well, we've we've always done it that way. Right. But, yeah, but, we've always done it. So when I'm bringing someone new in or deciding who to keep in a leadership position, uh, I look for a couple of things. The first thing is about is just trust, because uh, I try to create a relationship with with my subordinates, in which I feel almost more like colleagues, where they are not afraid of me. And I, it's, I've never, it's not my personality. So it's not a natural thing to have people afraid of me, but I've worked for people I was afraid of where, oh, I don't want to go tell the boss what happened because he's going to blow his mind when he hears. And then everyone's afraid to tell him that. Or sometimes they're afraid to tell him, hey, you shouldn't do that because that would be a mistake. And then a leader needs someone who will tell him when something's not working truth, right. or, when, or when she's about to make a mistake and say, hey, let me play devil's advocate with you. Maybe. What, have you thought about what happens if you do that? Or maybe you should go down this road. And a good leader will listen to the people that is on her team and his team. And, um, and so me, it's first off is creating a trust relationship with them. But then trust is so important. If I, and I've had this in the past where someone wasn't truthful with me. And to me, that's the beginning of the end of that relationship. Because the only reason not to tell me the truth isn't because you're afraid of me, but because you've got some other motivation. Because um, because we don't have this culture of fear that something else is going on. And if you don't tell me the truth, maybe because you did something wrong, you're afraid you'll get in trouble for it. Or, you know, something that's going on, you're hiding it from me for some other reason. Right. There's no other reason that makes sense if you're not afraid of me. And so to me, it's 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 people who I believe I can have trust and faith in. And I'm blessed to have that right now. The cabinet that I have now is great because while I'm learning their strengths, uh, I also have a lot of faith in them and they understand that my success is their success. And if they're they're if, if they're holding back on me and I make a mistake, then the university suffers and they suffer. And that's the kind of relationship that I'm trying to build with them. But when I've hired people, I've made, I've made mistakes before. I bet you have too. You probably recruited someone. You thought you recruited one person, got another person that came in. That happens sometimes. Right. What I've discovered is for me, fit, is almost better than talent. If you and I are not going to connect on a personal level, 
uh, if we're not going to be able to, like, if I think he, she's really good at this, but she's, we're, we're not a good fit. Like we would not enjoy it having dinner together. I, uh, I got to find something that's a little closer to uh, someone who's a, who, who can fit my style and not be uh, a cancer on the team. Cause there's some people that are just so angry and bitter and I feel sorry about how their life turned out. I got to find someone who can actually, you know, bring a little bit of joy to the world and who's positive and enthusiastic. And if they don't have the skills, I can work with them on the skills. I can't work with them on the personality and the fit. And um, some people um, can't get the skills either. And sometimes you make a mistake there too. So I don't say I, I hire based on personality only, but it's a big part for me. And the mistakes I've made in the past for people who just, I just didn't, I couldn't connect with on a personal level. And then especially when that played out is when I couldn't trust them anymore. And so I'm looking for those kinds of things. I also think positive positivity. You talk about getting on the bus. There's a great book about the energy bus and there are energy vampires. You've got it right there. Yeah. There are people that will suck the energy out of a, out of a room. And there are people, there's one person I, I talked to her the other day. She's a scattered joy. Like she walks in a room and everyone's happy. You know, you want that, you want that person selling tickets for you or raising money for you. That's a person like everyone wants to see that person. You don't want a person working on your team. They're like, Oh my gosh, here comes, you know, Bill again. And so, uh, so personality and, and temperament plays a big role. And then finally, how they treat other people. Um, I, I tend to, uh, I, I believe this. I work for them. I work for the university. I work for the students and the faculty and the staff, the players. I tell them all the time, I'm here to serve you, not the other way around. And I, I've met people who don't think that. They feel like they're here to get served and they treat their subordinates poorly. And then that creates distrust and problems within the leadership team. So how they treat other people, how they treat their spouse, if they're married, how they treat the waiter when you go out to a restaurant. Uh, I watch all those things. And uh, when I find someone who has skills, is someone people want to be around who treat other people with respect, who I believe I can trust, I'll hire that person 10 times out of 10. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the point you just made uh, is that people, they, uh, when it comes to leadership, um, we say it all the time in the coaching world, they don't care what you know. They want to know that you care, right? And it's 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 the relationship part of it is is big. When we uh, in, the, in athletics and in, in the football world, we talk about building cultures. And to build a positive culture, you have to have a relationship. That book we talked about, uh, The Energy Bus, man, that book changed my life. Sure. Because what that book showed me is that we all we all have missions in life and we have to discover our mission, but we also have to help other people discover theirs. And so as we as we help others discover theirs, right, we can help them get to their paths or get to their places while we get to our places like you talked about your mentors did. And you are where you are helping the people you're helping because someone else helped you. And when we define our missions, uh, our purposes, then if you're doing it the right way, they have to be, it has to be connected to that. So yes, I, I agree. Those, those are the staff members that you want. I, I, I can add one story to that. I, I was at SMU as a defensive coordinator and I was 
I was reading an article that one of our defensive staff members had done. And, and in that article, he they asked him something about his relationship with me. And of course we were friends, but he said, you know, I'm here to help coach Malone be the best defensive coordinator that he can be. And I, I kind of thought that was funny because my vision was I was here to help him be the best coach that he could be. And we were both here to help the players be the best that they could be. And when you talk to our players, they were always about helping the coaches be thought of as being the best coaches they, you know, in the country. And so that triangle, I think it only happens when there's relationship, right? When, when you have relationship with people, you care about what happens to them and they care about what happens to you. And uh, when you have that on your staff, uh, it's, it's big time. It's not always a guarantee that you're going to win, but you have to start there, right? Uh, so Saturdays are busy days for college presidents, just like college coaches. And so I don't watch college football till Sunday. So Sunday, I don't watch NFL. I watch college football. And there was a you know, really scary incident with a, with a coach collapsing on the sideline. Yeah. And uh, I was so moved by his players. I mean, they were like shaken by it. And that happens if someone you know. But this one's just someone they know. It happens to be a position coach. And they, so they're typically a lot closer to the position coach than your head coach or your coordinator. And they were shaken by this because right. that's their guy, right? And, and you know, it, it had, I know the other coaches went over and tried to pep them up and so on. I was moved by the whole process. I was moved by how much they cared about him and about other coaches who came in. Okay, all right, get your head in the game and we got to go. And that's the thing about football. You know, if someone gets carted off, referee starts the clock you got to go again but it just i don't think people understand the relationships that get built in a locker room among it's not just players and players it's players and coaches coaches right. and coaches coaches and coordinators coaches and administrators uh the cleaning guy i mean everyone's got relationships and that was just such a poignant moment for me i just what i took away about that is i hope people saw what the young people think about the people that are charged, you know, right. that, that are leading them. Uh, they look up to them. And for many people, it becomes like it was for me, a, a father figure or a mother figure, someone who's because, because they recognize that that coach is pouring themselves into them. So that becomes a burden, right? It's a responsibility. Now I gotta, I gotta, you've done for me and I gotta, I gotta put out, I gotta show that I was worth it. And so that's kind of how this works when it works best. Right. And, and, and it, for, for a player, and I was a player once many, 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 many years ago, and you were as well. And, you can still play. But, I can tell. but as a player, you appreciate the coach, right? Like you said earlier, you appreciate the fact that this person, yes, it's his job, but my coach, he, he just gives me a little bit more, right? I can tell that he cares. So then you flip it back to the coach and where you have to understand we as coaches, we have to understand where I do an exercise with my players every year and we call it, um, we call it stories. And, and, and what we want to do is, is we want to tell, we want each person in the room to tell their story. Yes, of course, your name is Van Malone. You're from Houston. Yes, no, we want to get below the surface. 
We want to find out what makes you tick because as a coach, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can because I, I know all our kids, they our players, they come in with records. They come in with things that they've dealt with and they come in with, with baggage and we all come in with baggage. Well, well, in that room, when we close the door, if we're going to be as close as we have to be to be successful, then we have to all understand, right? We have to understand why you don't like to turn your ringer off on your phone. You don't like to turn your ringer off because one day you turn it off and you missed a call from your best friend and that best friend really needed you and you were not there. So that's why you don't like to turn the ringer off because you don't want to ever be in that situation. So when we learn your baggage, then we can we can be closer to you and we don't get perturbed because your phone is always ringing, right? Because we know why you have that struggle. My next, my next place that I want to go is, is really, wow, it's, it's been rough here the last few years when we talk about COVID and, and all the protocols that went along with COVID. We talk about the social justice discussions and, and really the ways that they they helped us grow. What did that moment, right? Wherever you were, whatever you were doing, what did that moment do for you as a leader? How did that help you become a better leader? You know, uh, that's such a great question. And I think about this a lot because I think I said earlier, I learned a lot about administration. I learned a lot about myself when I went to Arkansas State because I got, I've been there for, um, three years and we were just kind of getting going. We had to deal with some stuff the first year and we built a strategic plan and we're getting ready to roll here. <clears throat> and COVID came along and just shut down everything as you, as everyone knows. And at the same time, you have this social injustice, social justice, Black Lives Matter movement that's happening almost simultaneously. The world just seemed to just like every moment you woke up thinking what's gonna happen today. And um, what I learned about myself is that, that what's so important is to not try to make friends when you need friends. And that's a saying I heard a long time ago, but when you're in a crisis, you don't need to have to introduce yourself to someone and say, hey, I know you're, this is a problem for you. I'm Kelly Danfoss, I'm the, I'm the president here. They need to know me already. And this goes with student groups, with faculty and staff, because when you know someone, when they know your heart, when there's not a crisis going on, then when a crisis goes on, so much of the response is based on faith right. and hope. And hope is that this person's going to fix this problem. And I believe that they have my best interests in heart and, and this person will find a solution. I didn't know a solution to all the, the racial conflict that was happening uh, nationally or even within the hearts and minds of our students on our campus, but also our faculty and staff. I didn't know what was gonna happen with COVID, but everyone on my campus knew that my number one concern was about them because I had established that relationship earlier. And that's what I'm trying to do here at this new university is to engage with everyone so they know who I am, going to every faculty meeting, staff meetings, staff senate, faculty senate, going, uh, meeting with all the, all the uh, athletics team. We had every sports team come over to our, our house for dinner just so they know who I am. Um, and we just had the, right before I got on here, we had the cheerleading squad come over. Everyone, uh, they cheer for everybody else. No one ever cheers for them. And so 
brought them in and I, I want them all to know me. Not, I'm, not, I'm not predicting something bad will happen, but if something bad does happen, that they know who I am and that right. they believe that I'm honest when I say this, when people ask me, what keeps you awake at night? It's not my budget, although I pay a lot of attention to budget. It's not my enrollment. It's not about the next academic program we're trying to bring on. But what keeps me awake at night is the safety of my students and the health and safety of my faculty and staff. And when you talk about the, the social justice explosion that we had uh, in that period, and you talk about COVID, when people believe that you care about them, they'll, they'll, they'll follow your lead. And that's what you're doing is building that social capital for the time you need to spend it. If you try to spend it before you have it, you're always in deficit spending. And sometimes a leader walks in and COVID happens right when you walk in. But if you spend some time getting ready for that, and by the way, it was COVID in 2020, but it'll be something else in 2023. I hope, I hope it's not worse than that. But to me, <clears throat> what I learned about leadership was that it worked, that developing the relationships, which is really important for me, developing those relationships worked for me because it allowed me to lead. Because, uh, you know, we talk a lot about leadership. We don't talk much about followership, but followership has a lot to do with faith and belief and, and deciding that you're going to be part of the solution as well. I was able to create a cadre of followers um, that took my lead and said, hey, we're going to do this. And it's not if, it's when, and we're going to make this better. We're going to fix these things or address these things. And we're going to have open conversations about them. And we'll just be honest that I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. But you know, when I make that mistake, that it's just a mistake. It's not because I'm, I, I'm trying to hurt you or hurt somebody else. It's because I'm trying to figure this out along with you. And I think part of it is being vulnerable with people and just being honest. I wrote, uh, because it's kind of a small shop at Arkansas State, I probably wrote 200 emails about COVID that I wrote myself. I had a lot of people editing after I wrote them. But I wanted people to hear, and I and I was I was in those emails. I'm being vulnerable. Said here, I'm nervous about this, or here's something I don't know. Here's what I do know. I understand why you don't want to wear a mask, but we believe that wearing masks is helpful. And here's why we do it. And try to explain everything, and um, and and so that that's what I learned. I learned about the importance of of leading before the crisis gets there, and it it worked in both those cases on that campus. I'm trying to do the same thing here on this campus to engage with everyone saying so they knew who I am, that they're not surprised. You ever hear the, the story, uh, we're here from the government, we're here to help. You know, when the mm -hmm. FBI comes in, they don't know anything about anything and they kind of stroll in there. Um, uh, they want to hear from the, from the local people because local people understand them. And I want to be the local guy. All right. I think that's, I think that's an, uh, a great point is that, you know, when, when you, when you have money in the bank, we say it to our players all the time, you know, when you have money in the bank because you have credibility, because I know who you are, then in in adverse times, I can trust you. I can, right? I I, I know, right? And so I think that's that's an excellent point. So what the next thing that I want to do, and this is a little off script, but sometimes we go off script, uh, but, but I want to give you a magic wand because... Um, during those times, there was a lot of discussion about diversity. There was a lot of discussion about, um, you know, the way the way we've always done things. And so, I would ask you, 
you know, in in hiring across the country, in higher education, in leadership positions. Uh, well, I'll give you a magic wand. And I will say to you, because there's discussion in my world, there's discussion about um, lack of diversity in hiring in the NFL, in college. And I give you a magic wand in higher education, in administration. And I say to you, use that magic wand wisely. <laughs> but, but what things would you do to help us, to help this world of, of college athletics, of, of the NFL, uh, do a better job of, of being diverse in, and being broad in our view in, in hiring? Uh, I think about this a lot too, because I, I do get to hire people in leadership positions and, and, and I think people are always watching to see the kinds of people you're hiring, certainly looking for the kinds of talent that you're bringing in. But I think they're symbolically, they're looking for certain things as well. And, um, and I think there's a couple of things that I'd probably like to talk about. If you had the magic wand, I think that there is, um, there is a, a dearth of people who believe in themselves. And I wish that I could magically touch people on the shoulder and say that you can do this. And by the way, it's, it's not, it's not always just you, you got lucky and someone, you know, tapped into you and brought you in. That happened to me a lot. It happens to other people too. Uh, but there's a lot of preparation that goes into that. And so be thinking about professional development and think about your, your young man who's a, who's a coach at Valdosta. I mean, he said, I want to go to those conferences. There's a lot of people sitting back waiting for someone to tap them on the shoulder. He didn't do that. He went out there. When you go to a conference, you don't sit in your room and watch Netflix like I want to do. You know, when I was younger and a, a young professor and I was trying to work my way, I had to go and people don't like to use the word networking, but I had to go meet people. And uh, when I gave my presentation, I, I wanted to have people in my room. And so when other people were presenting, I went to their room and I, you know, you feed off of that. And so when, when young people who are wanting to get ahead, I think there's a, a valuable role that they can play in their own destiny by getting professional development, by asking for advice. I think it's really useful. I tell students all the time, uh, if you want to know what it's like to be a professor, uh, go talk to one. But before you do, go Google their name and find out the research they do and then go in there and ask them like about your research. To them, their articles are, and their books are like their babies. They'll talk all day right. about that. And that's how you learn about this. And then, then you know, then that person says, man, uh, Van came in here and was interested in my article. Next time I go to a conference, I'm going to take him with me because he's shown some interest. So I think that's one thing is to put courage into people, say that to have them believe in themselves to, and then to take an active role in it by reaching out to people. Think about, um, I, I've got a young man who I'm, I'm trying to mentor right now who has uh, played football at a school I used to go, go work at. And he wants, he's a coach right now, but he wants to move up. And I'm always, whenever I see someone uh, who's hiring, I always put in a good word for him. And it hasn't worked yet. I haven't gotten him the job yet. But but he reached out to me and said, hey, Kelly, remember me? Remember when I was a student? Now, here I am now, and I'm, I'm ready to take the next step. And if he hadn't reached out to me, I wouldn't have thought about doing it. Second is that we are all, those of us who have risen to a certain level, 
have the opportunity to set an example for other people to, to look at and to give people chances to come in. And I, I'm not saying you hire people just to make a statement or a symbolic statement, but I think um, that if you can if you can hire someone that looks or sounds or believes different from what is seen as typical, then if you can diversify your leadership your leadership team um, in a way that shows other people that you believe in that, then the people who aren't even on your cabinet they start to get inspired by the fact that I'm, I'm not on his cabinet, but I know he's at least thinking about me when he hired that person. Wow. And so, and, and when I hire people, other people who hire people also start, the people who work for me, when they're hiring people say, well, I need to make sure I'm thinking about diversity of thought, diversity of belief, diversity of, of color, diversity of, of ethnicity. And the boss is doing that. I got to do that too. So I have a great responsibility to be thinking about that as well. Because going back to something I said early, earlier, people are always watching me for yes. good or ill. And so everything I do is being watched. And if I believe this is important, and I do, and if I don't practice what I believe, if I if I don't do that, then I then then I've done then I've done a disservice to the thing that I believe in. I haven't encouraged other people who are watching, uh, other people who are aspiring to get up, or other people who work for me that are also doing the the, the hiring. So I think two things. One is the people who want to get ahead, if they want to move up in leadership, they want to become a coach, they want to get into become an athletics director, take, take control of your destiny. Seize the day yourself. Right. Use your networks to, to move up. And then those of us who have gone to at some level, accept those requests for help, engage with those people, and then lead by example when you do your own hiring. Wow. Big time answer there. Um, so, you know, as a coach, I get an opportunity and, and I always, I use this example. So I, I, I see player X and this player, you know, he just cannot get it. He can't get cover two. Uh, we've drilled it we've worked it, we've worked it, we've worked it. And then all of a sudden he gets it, right? I know what happens out there on the field on Saturdays, but game day is more than just that. Game day is when that player who he can't seem to get it right in terms of his academics, he is late for things, he can't get it right, but then all of a sudden he gets it. All of a sudden, when you hear him talking, he just sounds differently than he did as a freshman or, or as he did as a sophomore. He just sounds, I hear him encouraging others to be on time. I hear him trying to teach somebody else the cover two techniques that we use. That's game day for me. Yes, again, I know what happens on Saturday, but that's game day. That is when, when you're developing people, when you're helping them to maximize their walk that's game day. So I would ask you as a president, as a president of a university, what is game day for you? Game day is graduation day for me. I, I'm, we're in the business of changing people's lives. And, um, and the lives we change aren't just students, they're faculty and staff that come here. Many of them come and go because this is a step to somewhere else. Many of them come here and stay there, spend their whole career here 
and I hope that we're changing their life for the better as well. But um, when I look at our freshman class every year, and there was a time when a president would meet with a freshman class and say, look to your left, look to your right. And one year, one of you will be gone. And in two years or three years, only one of you will be left. And if you're lucky, that one that late that's left will graduate. Well, that, that whole philosophy is changing now. College presidents around the country, universities around the country are so concerned about student success, about freshman retention, about graduation rates. And for me, when you take a student who, again, I see myself in a lot of these kids, first generation kid, poor kid, not, didn't go to a good school, wasn't prepared academically. Um, one of the blessings of my life is I had a 2.54 GPA in co community college. I was not I was not graduate school material. I never would have gotten to graduate school. When I went to Sam Houston State, they just took all my grades and brought them in as pass fail. And there was a fail on there, by the way. All they did was bring all my credits in and I got a fresh start. Now I'm 22 years old. You know, a lot of 17, 18 year old boys uh, like me, I wasn't ready to go to college. But when I was 22 and I went back, I was ready. I knew responsibility. I was paying for it, studying and so on. And I got to start my GPA all over again. But when we bring kids in here that they are petrified, they don't believe they belong here, they're fragile, that the smallest thing can just have them go home, pack their stuff up and go home at night, never come back. They're afraid to take risks because they're fragile. We can start getting them to take risks, to do something challenging because, you know, you're not going to, you know, take a hard class. And okay, you got a D in that class, but you know, you're still going to be here and um, try to try to do something outside normal. Try, hey, why don't you try to study abroad? Oh, I don't have a passport. Let me help you get a passport. That thing will change your life. Getting a passport. I had alumnus who came by uh, recently and I went to her talk on Saturday morning and she took it. She showed a picture of herself. She's 19 years old and she looks like a little tiny little girl. And she, it's her first time on an airplane. She took a selfie and she kept that picture because my life is, I'm in the process of watching my life change as I'm on this plane because I'll never be the same as when I come back from Washington, D.C. on this on this trip, take them to school. So game day for me is just like you. You take kids that don't have it, don't get it. They, they're confused. They mess up. They do dumb things. They don't go to class. They fail a class. But by the time they're juniors and seniors, they start doing stuff. And that, next thing you know, you go to the tutoring, the tutoring session. And that guy you thought was never going to make it is, is a tutor in the action in the action center and you go, Hey, that kid's doing it. By the way, I think the best way to learn something is to teach it. And right. when these kids uh, finally get it and they start teaching other people, and it's not just teaching about the topic it's about teaching about life and about how you survive in college. I tell freshmen all the time, you know, I can help you, but you should go talk to a junior or senior. Cause they, they just did this. And, you know, so I hope, I hope you can find someone like I found people in my life that'll do that. And so, but then when they walk across the stage of graduation and we have a lot, a lot of first generation kids, a lot of poor kids, when they walk across stage, it's not just them. I saw people, the last graduation, people crying walk across the stage, but I hear their parents up there screaming and yelling like crazy because of what their kid just did, their grandkids just did. When my mom and dad, when I graduated from community college, my mom bought a dress. My dad bought his first suit. They wore corsages to the graduation. My mom, my sisters dressed up like it was a prom. 
<laughs> I was wearing a suit. We didn't have caps and gowns in Canada. I get goosebumps. I get emotional thinking about it. But I see that every graduation, I never not think about my community college graduation, how important it was for my family. And by the way, we're not just changing that kid's life. Oftentimes, it's the siblings that come behind. They're their older brother or sister, and they're watching. How's, how's Johnny doing? How's Ben doing? Hey, he made it. Maybe I can make it. And then their kids, then their grandkids. It's generational, intergenerational, intragenerational. So we're in the business changing lives, and I see that happen at graduation. For us, graduation is Saturday. I wish I could paint up, get, my, get the band yelling and the cheerleaders up there and celebrate like it's the biggest victory, like we just beat App State. Right. So I had to get in there because we just beat App State. But I wish everyone could feel at graduation like I feel at graduation because the day after graduation, I'm pumped up for the next semester to start. Yeah. So, so I'm listening here and I'm hearing my life and I'm hearing many of the young men that I've had an opportunity to coach. Uh, but I'm also hearing my wife's uh, story. And my wife graduated from Southwest Texas. Good for her. Like, I need to meet her. Yeah. So, but but here's her story. She she went to college, and uh, so her her counselors helped her figure it out that first year, and and she had no clue from a finance family didn't have any money to be able to pay for school. So somehow she got some financial aid or whatever she did. And uh, and their, her second semester there, or, or maybe her second year there, I may get the dates jacked up, but she got contacted and said, okay, you, you're out of gas here. <laughs> you, you, you need to pay this bill next week or we're gonna have some problems and and she went to the financial aid office and she said, listen, I want to go to college. I want to finish college. I have no money. I have no clue. I don't know how I'm going to make it work, but I want to go to college and I want to stay here. I don't want to go home. And, and, and they helped her. It worked out. I was a down the road at the University of Texas on scholarship and had no worries at all, but I knew her story. And I've been, I've been so proud and so connected to Southwest Texas slash Texas State University because of, of what somebody in that financial aid office, because of what somebody did to keep this kid in school who wanted to go to school and she's she graduated and got her master's in counseling and is is gone on with her life but at that moment just like you talked about at, at that moment it could have been all over and yeah. and somebody grabbed her and and did whatever they did <laughs> to extend her financial aid to do whatever but her family they had no clue. They just knew that she was away at school and how she's getting it paid for. Who knows? Because we surely don't have the money to give her, send her, raise for her. And, uh, and so I'm always really appreciative to, to that university for uh, giving a young lady. And I'm sure 
a whole lot more young people an opportunity to change their life. Um, yeah, and, and good for her, though, because a lot of kids would have said, I'm, I'm done. Just go off. Yeah, she, yeah. Ask for help. Yeah, I think no, she was quite intent on not doing that. So my final question, and this is always a cool question uh, for people to kind of have to deal with. Um, I'd hate to be in your position right now to have to answer this one. Uh, but with where you are in your life, with the things you've learned, with, with the lessons you've failed, and some you've, you've come out with flying colors. If you could talk to your younger self, what would you tell young Kelly that you know now? And how could you help him by, by teaching him some things? What would you tell your younger self that you know now? You know, um, uh, 15, 16 year old Kelly didn't think he was worth it. Uh, I, I had a teacher that called me out in class one day and, and uh, like 10th, 11th grade and really, you know, had a strong conversation with me. It's the first time in my life that someone who wasn't my mom told me I could be somebody. Cause I always heard the opposite. You know, I was a, chubby kid with a girl's name that rhymed with belly and jelly. It's not, that's not a fun way to grow up. And I was always the youngest kid in class because I, I skipped kindergarten. So I was like a year behind everybody all the time. And I didn't believe in myself at all. And, um, and so I, I didn't make any plans. I was just kind of like drifting along. And uh, the good fortune that I had is that people saw something in me I didn't see in myself. And I would have accepted the help sooner if I had believed that I was worth it. And we talk a lot about self-esteem, self-derogation. I had a high self-derogation. I talked to myself about how bad and how dumb I was all the time. And I wish I could have been more positive towards myself. I wish I would have believed in myself more because I would have saved myself a lot of pain. I would have got there a lot faster. And I might have become a, I might have become the Mountie I wanted to become, which is it's still kind of Everyone, every once in a while, someone would read my bio and said, he always wanted to be a goalie in the NHL and a Mountie, and he never did either one of those. And I was like, great, thanks for <laughs> failure of all time. But um, but it wasn't, and I still struggle with this, and I still struggle with not believing in myself. That's why I work so hard. Uh, I, I, I always, I'm a people pleaser, and I'm trying to, I'm always running scared, you know, um, but I, I had the fortune of other people believing me, in me. And if I had believed in myself more, it might have gotten better faster. So that's it. Well, no one thing, asked that question before, but it's a good, that's, that's it. Well, one, one of the things I'll tell you is that after, after being around some really good leaders, even just on this podcast, that that, that is the case with many of them is that they never, they never thought that they were good enough. They never thought that they could please whoever they were pleasing. They never thought that they could uh, gain the respect of these people. And they, and they, like you said, that's why they drive so hard. That's why they go so hard because they are trying to climb that mountain. And then that's fine. But the thing that I've learned is that as we do that, because we drive hard, because we want to, 
I don't know what that thing is that we want to get to, but we have to enjoy the process. We have to enjoy because it's a great, it's a great road to that success, right? But but we have to enjoy because there are some things that you get to accomplish. There are some things that you accomplish along the way that you have to enjoy as you continue to strive to accomplish more. Uh, and that that takes me to a story. I was I was a I had opportunity to be drafted into the NFL, and I was a a big time second round draft pick. And I was one day I was in the mall in Detroit. I was with the Lions. I was in the mall, and I said to myself, you know. I, so first of all, growing up, we didn't go to the mall because we didn't have the money to buy anything in the mall. So there's no mall in my life growing up. I, I I was not intrigued by going to the mall, but I here I am in this mall. And I said to myself, you know what? I've made it. I can buy anything I want in this mall. Anything I want, I can get it in this mall today. And, and I, felt, I felt so good about myself. This kid who never, who who some days didn't have food to eat, who some days didn't, uh, was evicted from his home, who had to listen to the the bus, the the transit uh, center, buses coming in out of the transit center, knew that at a certain time in the morning, the first bus arrived. And that was my alarm clock because our electricity was turned off. So you could hear the bus come in and that would let me know that it was 6 a.m. time to get ready to go to school. So this kid who had a who had a rough life, here I am in this mall and I can get anything. Now this same kid who believed that he was less than because his clothes were not as new as some of his friends and because he had to walk home after the football game uh, when other guys would hop in their cars and go home. This kid who who just never thought he was good enough in the mall on that day, I can buy anything I want. And so that was for about 35 seconds. That was my thought. And I was so proud, so proud about that moment, being able to be in that situation. But then I realized after one minute of having that thought, what does that make me, right? And and I felt really bad after being in a very high moment. I felt bad because I realized that all my life, I, I was second class because I didn't have, but I'm the same person, right? The fact that I can buy this stuff in the mall I'm I'm the same person. I'm the same person that I always been. Now I have a little bit more money makes me no different. So I said to myself, you can buy everything in this mall. And what does that mean? You know? And so I decided on that day that, that I would have to in my life, because I wasted a long time in my life striving for something that I realized 30 seconds ago, didn't mean anything. So so I want to make sure that I live my life in such a way that the things that I that I chase, they mean something. So so when I get to that place where I've where I see Tremaine Jackson as a head coach and I know the impact that I had on his life, but I can name many more guys 
that I had an impact on their lives, that's what I chase. Right, not not being the highest paid coach or not doing this or not winning championships. I chase the impact that I have an opportunity to make. Well, yes, I want to win championships. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yes, I want to win championships. But that's a part of that's a part of maximizing people. That's a part of maximizing players and coaches. You're going to win championships. When you do that and you do it the right way and you serve them and they understand that triangle, you'll win championships because that's the way you build it is, is through relationships, is through, yeah, a lot of fundamental techniques and all those things. But if you don't have the substance behind it, you won't, you won't win. You won't win big and you won't chase the things we're talking about. You won't chase the right things so that you can be fulfilled at the end of the day.